If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A global house price slump is coming, but what does it mean for London and those most in housing need? Mega Housing Association criticised for evicting tenants over safety concerns in New Block. South London Council hires one of London's trendiest rising star architects for a new wave of social housing. And Michael Gove promises 300,000 new homes a year. Will it happen and will it help? My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Russell Curtis. Russell is founder of RCKA Architects. Welcome to the show. Hi Merlin, thank you for having me on. Like it or not, owning a house in the capital has been a safe investment for nearly 40 years, with property prices reliably increasing year upon year. However, with a global financial crisis looming, a housing slump looks inevitable, and the scale of it could be devastating. The story has been gaining traction over the past couple of months, with Fran Boat, executive director of campaign group Positive Money, writing an opinion piece in The Guardian, breaking down why we're in this situation and what we think we should do about it. With interest rates soaring to new heights, the buying power of borrowers is collapsing, forcing many first-time buyers off the property market altogether. This depressed demand for homes has seen house prices fall in nine rich economies, and the fate of London's property sector is no different. Turbulence in the mortgage market following the infamous mini-budget has seen buyer demand fall by a third, Zoopla reported this week. The online property portal also warned that we may see a double-digit house price fall next year if mortgage rates stay at 6%. Fran Boat pointed out in The Guardian that while the dominant narrative has been that the ever-present shortage of supply has fueled surging house prices historically, economists actually argue that it is bank lending rather than the supply of housing that is the primary driver of price rises. She writes, quote, lending into real estate generates a self-sustaining cycle of credit supply, credit demand and rapid house price increases. When fewer people can afford to repay their mortgages, lending dries up, confidence drops and the cycle works in the opposite direction, making prices suddenly drop. So, Russell, uh, the average house price in London is more than half a million pounds, and that is something which potentially causes joy for some home homeowners, uh, but potentially misery for other people who aren't homeowners. Um, many listeners uh, might 
even possibly be celebrating the idea of a house price crash. But is it really a good thing for everyone? Um, what could be the consequences? It always seems strange to me these, uh, you know, when, when people start to panic about the corrections in the housing market. It is, a, it is a correction, isn't it? A drop of double digits, maybe nine or 10 percent. But if you look at the increase in house prices over the last few decades, I mean, it's insane amounts, many, many times more than that. So a, a surely a correction is, you know, is not is not a bad thing. The worry is that that correction might still exclude uh, you know, huge numbers of people from from getting a, a foot on the housing ladder. Um, so it might end up in the the, the the worst of all worlds where, you know, people end up in negative equity and, and, and can't, you know, are able to service their mortgages, but also house prices are not within the reach of, uh, of ordinary people. So, it, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's a very tricky situation. And, and could there be a, a knock-on impact for, say, private renters who we know are one of the most struggling groups in a city like London, people who really uh, are often paying over the odds and getting quite a bad deal out of it. Um, potentially, those are the people who might want to get on that property ladder as a way out of that situation. Um, they're, they're not going to see their rents go down as a result of this, are they? Probably not. And we're in this insane situation where rents on well, rental property, you know, is, is significantly higher than the um, than the the mortgage would be on a on a on a on that property had had they bought it. Um, and you know, I, and this is this is the fundamental issue for me that you know if we really want to be uh, if we want to give people up an opportunity to get you know to get on the housing ladder and buy homes and and and, and you know set down roots, then we need to make this stuff more accessible. But currently, renting just isn't isn't the means to do that that because you can't save up a deposit. And this is the odd thing because housing is often described as a marketplace, but if it behaved like any other market, prices going down would surely benefit someone, right? So you know, why are we in this situation where apparently that isn't happening? Or are there some winners? Who who will benefit from this? But it's a dysfunctional market, isn't it? It's an investment. This is the problem that people see see homes and uh, and property as an investment rather than being a place to live. And in any investment, prices go up and down. It's insane to expect you to get constant, constant rises in in values. But until we stop thinking about housing as a sort of commodity, as, a, as an investment, and start thinking about it as a, you know, as a place to live and, and, and enabling other things, then this, we're never going to get out of this cycle. We know that construction is a major part of the UK's economic output. Obviously, that includes everybody in the process, from the architect down to the people on the construction site. Could that also have a, a knock-on impact on, on our wider um, economy and vitality a city like London where there's so many jobs like this definitely and I think from a personal point of view as an architect this is the big risk that as soon as um, as soon as the, the the market slows down we're the first to see it um, because we're at the early stage in the process as soon as as soon as the market slows down or there's uncertainty people stop buying sites you know people are reluctant about bringing schemes forward so either where they don't know they're going to sell it or the cost of building that scheme out is more expensive than that they can sell it for. So all of that uncertainty is 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 really you know is really problematic, and people are already making decisions on whether to proceed with schemes um, based on based on this on that uncertainty. Having said that, 
I was speaking to a client the other day who's actually thinking of re-entering the market because suddenly land is starting to become available. So if you are, a, uh, you know, if you are a developer and you're looking to acquire sites, this is this is starting to become the time again because for a long time land simply hasn't been available to build. I would really hope that the local authorities would be. Uh, in a position to perhaps um, either acquire sites or housing associations acquire sites. You know, this is the, this is the time to be building public housing, isn't it? The the, the market is is not delivering, so it should be the the other uh, the other sort of um, bodies in in, in the market, um, housing associations and, and, and local authorities that, that are stepping in to to take control. One of the largest housing associations in London is evicting private tenants from an almost brand new East London block over building safety concerns. This is a story that previous London guest Ella Jessel reported on last week. Last month, Ellen Q, the Bayamoth 95,000 home landlord, wrote to tenants of the Goodwood apartment block in Chingford, informing them that they will be issued with Section 21 eviction notices terminating their tenancies after Christmas. Goodwood tenants, which include 20 children and also residents who are critically ill and disabled, have accused the landlord of treating them like, quote, easy targets. One tenant said, quote, I'm 63, I had moved to a part-time job, but I'm going to have to look for another full-time job now to be able to afford somewhere else. I want them to honour their original proposal that we can move back into our homes. The seven-storey building on the 290-home Walthamstow Stadium development was caught up in the cladding crisis shortly after its completion in 2017, after ACM, that's Aluminium Composite Material, was identified on several of the scheme's buildings. While the ACM cladding was removed in 2019, the Goodwood building still needs a year-long works programme. Tenants claimed they were originally told last year they would be rehoused during this period, and would later be allowed to move back into their homes. In September, however, they received letters to say their tenancies would now be terminated. In a statement, Ellen Q said, quote, We understand how upsetting the situation will be for the privately rented tenants at Goodwood Apartments, and are very sorry for this. Ending their private tenancies was a very difficult decision, which was taken to minimise disruption for the majority of residents at Stadium Place. So, Russell... Unfortunately, this isn't just an isolated incident. So uh, Clarion, which is one of the UK's largest housing associations, recently incurred £20 million of costs over major building issues at two high-profile London housing estates after inspectors found they could not be kept safe without major refurbishment or demolition. Uh, In Clarion's case, the building, Clare House, where residents vociferously fought against relocation, uh, it was completed in the 1960s, but the estate in Walthamstow uh, with L&Q was completed just five years ago. Um, In the bigger scheme of things, these are all contemporary buildings. So, so why are they facing so much, so many problems? Well, I suppose it was inevitable that uh, our conversation, Merlin, might uh, end up with um, something to do with procurement, and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. I, you know, I've, obviously, it, 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 this is horrendous for the uh, the residents that are affected by it, but it does speak of a, a, a wider malaise in the building industry, and it's not unconnected to to the tragedy at Grenfell, obviously. And I suppose, you know, our, our previous conversation was about house building and you know we need to desperately need to build more more housing um, because there are too, far too many people who are living in precarious circumstances or you know or unable to access housing at all um, but that can't be done at the expense of building good quality homes and it's um, you know there, there is a big problem that we have in the in, in, in the house building industry around quality and that 
meeting target um, ends up too often with substandard with a substandard product and this is an example of that I mean, what's interesting i mean one of the things that's so alarming about this particular story is the fact that it is a major housing association l and q london and quadrant um who is who's evicting people making them homeless how did we end up in a situation where even even organizations like this are having to do things like that well, I think if we compare this to the private house builder market for a second, so I think it's quite a useful parallel. Um, one of the reasons we're in this in this situation in, in house building is because all of the power has been concentrated in the hands of a very small number of uh, very large developers. And in order to compete, and in order to build homes, a lot of these housing associations have had to consolidate and merge in order to obtain the buying power that they need to invest in uh, in, 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 new, in new homes, because their remit is, to, is not only just to, to manage the properties that they have within their portfolio, but also to build, to build new ones. Um, but in, I suppose, you know, what happens to these, 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 these organisations when they get to a certain size is they have to start acting like big house builders um and, and and this is perhaps where the where where, where the tensions uh, arise that in order to do that you have to make uh commercial decisions which perhaps are not ethical decisions we know it's a highly resourced industry there's 250 trillion dollars tied up in housing around the world right um so why is it that with so much money and so much profit um are we in a situation where poor housing Buildings that need to be taken apart five years after they've been built are still is still being delivered, right? Because of cost cutting, and also when these things go wrong, it always seems to be the poorest and most vulnerable in society who are left facing the consequences. I think one of the problems is that we seem to oscillate every decade or so between these, you know, the the the, the markets crashing and the markets becoming out of reach, and and there's never a sort of a, 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 a middle ground. It's either we're all worried about house prices rising or we're all worried about house prices crashing. And these cycles don't really allow for long-term strategic investment. This is a sweeping generalization because clearly some, some, some organizations who, who hold properties and have a long-term interest in, in what they're doing uh, perhaps concentrate a little bit more on or focus a bit more on quality. But, you know, quality isn't isn't is very rarely um, a consideration it's it's usually how quickly can we deliver and how much is it going to cost southwark council has commissioned up-and-coming london-based architects al jawad pike to design 18 affordable homes in bermondsey the story was reported by the aj this week which ran a selection of awe-inspiring images showing the architect's proposals for the new social housing the scheme would see the demolition of nine garages at Mason House and Townsend House, and their replacement with two residential blocks together with a substation and bike storage building. The larger building would contain 10 homes for social rent, including four three beds and four two beds, while the smaller building would contain eight shared ownership homes with three three beds and three two beds. Al Jared Pike was appointed through the council's new design lot, a selected list of new practices which earn less than £2 million a year uh, on Southwark's architect design services framework. The seven-year-old studio has previously designed homes for Hackney Council, which are currently under construction. Um, so, Russell, um, we know there's a huge range in the quality of social housing, even within Southwark itself. Um, for example, 
the local authority, if you travel around it, you can see some buildings from the 80s, 1980s that look pretty average. Um, what kind of suppliers do councils usually commission uh, when it comes to affordable housing schemes? And why is this such a, an unusual and, uh, dare I say, impressive uh, choice of, of design team uh, to take on a public housing project? Well, it's nice to be talking about a positive housing story, isn't it? Um, and, you know, this looks like a, a you know, a, a, a brilliant scheme. Um, but I have to say that, that Southwark, it, it's not alone. I mean, Southwark and lots of other London boroughs are building some brilliant projects at the moment um, with some great architects. So there is, you know, it's, it's hugely refreshing to be witnessing uh, these projects coming forward with good architects chosen in a sensible way uh, that de really deliver housing quality for ordinary people. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a great story to see, but I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I think we should be clear that it's, it's not, not one in isolation. I mean, um, Southwark is, is sort of leading the way, but Hackney, uh, Barking and Dagenham, Camden, all of these boroughs and more are, are also uh, delivering some brilliant council housing projects uh, using using great practices. I mean, it's, it seems, therefore, that we're going through a bit of a renaissance, uh, certainly in London. We're sort of reconnecting with our roots of, of high quality public housing design, stuff that you can see, for example, in the 60s and 70s, built in places like Lambeth and, and in Camden. Why is this happening? Why are we in a situation where we're, we're witnessing a revival in our ambitions for this type of home? We can't rely on the on the private market to deliver this stuff. Uh, we, we certainly can't. We can't rely on the, the private market alone to, to deliver uh, housing. It always ends up doing so as a sort of reluctantly because it's required to under planning rather than something that it you know it, it chooses to deliver. Uh, and a lot of London boroughs do have good land in, in accessible, sustainable locations, which it can, it can, you know, they, they can bring bring homes forward uh, in in that way. I mean, it just tend to be sort of the interesting, it's the infill things that I think are particularly uh, interesting for uh, uh, for smaller practices. People like Al Jawa, Pike and, and others, the, the smaller, the smaller, newer firms who perhaps haven't delivered large projects are, are, re, are really being given a, a, a proper bite at the cherry um, and it's the, through things like the Southwark framework that they really get the opportunity, whereas they might not have done perhaps 10 or 15 years ago when housing was pretty much delivered by, you know, a very small number of large practices. And this is the thing. So obviously in London, maybe this isn't so unusual, but I, I get sent press releases all the time with like new affordable, new social housing all over the country. And you look at the, the images of the homes and um, it looks very unambitious. If you ask who were the architects, who were the design team, you hear it was just, you know, like some mega company who've just rolled out a standard thing, which could be built anywhere in the country, if not in the world, right? Why is it that it's important that commissions like this are going to, you know, potentially smaller companies, potentially um, people who are more rooted in their community? Why Why is that important? Not to want to uh, raise the, the P word again, but procurement's a big issue here. And, um, you know, Southwark has taken a particularly enlightened approach to, to how it goes about commissioning these design services, recognising that there is an a, a appropriateness between the size of practice uh, delivering projects of uh, you know uh, of certain scales, so people like Al Jawad Pike and, and and other small practices like uh, like them um, are, are 
better at delivering smaller infill schemes than some of the big the big housing practices who, who you'll, you'll know about. But if we're talking about large scale master planning regeneration projects, then perhaps that's that's when you'd bring in the, the, the big housing people. I think the, the procurement system in this country has is so historically has been very risk averse and small practices are, have historically been seen as somehow more risky than the large ones, which is what's pre prevented them having opportunities uh, with these kind of projects. But once once you start to break that down and once you start to get these enlightened clients um, such as you know, Southwark and Camden and, and, and others, then and it, they can demonstrate that small practices are really good at this stuff and you know have care about it and have an understanding of the local context and the people who are going to live in the homes and all of those sort of things and can really make a, a you know a significant difference uh, at that at that kind of scale i think for listeners it's worth googling al jared pike and having a look at the images uh, that come up you know they are an award-winning studio and well, in some ways, best known for designing spaces for luxury brands like Chloe, Aesop, All Saints. Um, I mean, there are some people who would say, and I'm not one of them, uh, but they would say social housing, public housing, that should be a no frills thing, right? Uh, in the 1960s, Camden Council was like brutally lambasted in the press for the high cost of some of its pioneering council housing schemes. Um, why are those people wrong? Why is design so important when it comes to sustainable social housing? Why should people not be cutting corners? We talked about this earlier, but I think the you know we need to stop thinking about property as I mean it's a famous phrase, isn't it? The sort of um, safety deposit boxes in the sky, right? We need to move away from the idea of these things of being you know just stuff that you trade, and uh, and to do that we we have to be giving people the confidence that you know that the, the, the homes that they live in are of good quality they're safe it's somewhere that you want to live why shouldn't ordinary people have access to homes like like these um, you know it's it's an investment in the future we, we, we know it's it's not just about creating bricks and mortar it's about setting people off on a you know a healthy uh, you know fulfilled life uh, and if you don't have that, uh, then you know, then it, then it's very difficult for you know for people to be productive and people to, in, you know, have have you know uh, um, have lives of, of of meaning. Why is it that the failure to deliver consistently high quality council housing um, has caused so much damage when it comes to people's perceptions of public housing as a viable alternative um, to this current dominant model, which focuses on home ownership? Well, we just, we stopped doing it, didn't we? I mean, we hardly built any council homes in the sort of in in the eighties and nineties. Um, largely, I think, in in response to the perceived failures of uh, of sixties and seventies sort of you know post war housing and and, and um, you know and there were there were failures, but there were far more successes. And and I think that we've lost we've lost sight of that a little bit, um, which you know which you know obviously coupled with with political political um, situations that, that that sort of suggested that the market was the, was the, the solution to everything when clearly clearly that isn't the case. But we can we can do it. We've just lost confidence in our abilities, and I hope some of that sort of coming back now and, and projects like this are, are perhaps an indication that that's the case. Housing Secretary Michael Gove has confirmed the government's commitment to deliver on its 300,000 new homes a year building target. 
The move ends doubts cast by the newly ex-Prime Minister Liz Truss, who had promised to abolish what she described as, quote, Stalinist housing targets. Gove's comments on BBC's Sunday with Laura Kunzberg were later picked up by industry publications and The Independent. According to the Office for National Statistics, more than 200,000 homes were delivered in 2020 to 2021. However, in the Tory leadership contest this summer, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss made clear they would abandon the target, which was included in the party's 2019 manifesto. Gove, who was reappointed levelling up secretary, has now recommitted ministers to deliver the pledge by the mid-2020s, despite warning it would be difficult to meet due to economic circumstances. He said, quote, We need to be straight with people. The cost of materials has increased because of the problems with global supply chains, and also a very tight labour market means that the capacity to build those homes at the rate we want is constrained. Joining Gove in the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities is Lee Rowley. It was also announced this week, making him the fourth Minister for Housing so far in 2022. The MP for North Derbyshire will have overarching responsibility for housing strategy, including supply and home ownership, housing funds, and including the housing affordable housing programme under the direction of Gove. So, Russell, Lee Rowley has written about the pressing issue of house building in his borough, saying, quote, Far more houses have been built than should have happened, and decisions weren't taken early enough to prevent that. What faith do you have that he will improve things for people in the most housing need? Absolutely none. And I just find this whole situation so exasperating. We, I mean, we, we, need, we need housing targets. We, we need housing targets because it seems to be the only way that we can get people to get, get, get uh, lots of uh, places to build housing but you can't do that alone with just you know with just targets you have to put in place a whole infrastructure for how you're going to be delivering these homes and he talks and, and Gove talks about um talks about you know the, a, a tightening labor market but we've made that ourselves you know we've we've told people they're not welcome to come here and we're reliant on foreign labor to you know to 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 prop up our uh, prop up our building industry so unless you've got a, a way of solving uh, solving the labor market by through through uh, allowing you know expand growing the the, the labor market through you know, allowing people to come in from abroad and and help us we've got no chance of delivering these these homes and the and also we're not going to be able to do it unless we have a proper reform of planning policy that um, that addresses it from a strategic level rather than just allocating uh, targets to each of the local planning authorities. I mean, it just feels like every every week we hear about some initiative or some policy change or we're going to do this, but we're not going to do that. There's just no coherent strategy coming out of central government whatsoever as to how we're supposed to go about doing this. I mean, it does seem like a peculiarly UK thing that we could have a housing minister who has spoken out against house building. And, and I don't think he's, he's the first. I mean, I guess some people think that that's, that's right. I mean, wh wh where's the logic in that? Well, there, there's clearly no logic in it, is there? I mean, and, and again, I think just going back to our earlier point that we were talking about this generational divide, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's, it's those in positions of privilege, those who have managed secure a, you know, secure a house, 
uh, uh, that they can afford, that they've got a mortgage on, and all they see is their house price rising, and are worried about development happening near them that might, uh, you know, that might that might might compromise uh, their constant house price rises. And you know, we 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 can't be in this situation where you know this this happens just over and over again, and there there is no big thinking from government as to how we're going to go about actually delivering this stuff. And, and it's interesting because we know that roughly 300,000 new homes a year is what the country needs. And we've had various house targets before. We've never actually met the the target. We've never actually delivered the number of homes that are needed on an annual basis. In uh, 2010, um, when uh, the coalition government took power, they um, famously abandoned all housing targets and the regional development agencies, which had been set up to to make sure this stuff was delivered in a sensitive and intelligent way. Um, is it is it just frankly impossible uh, in the UK to deliver enough homes? I mean, that's, it seems to be what it looks like. Is there a way to take the politics out of housing delivery? Um, I know you've dabbled in the idea of redeveloping uh, golf courses around London. Uh, well, I suspect not with the golf courses. No, I mean, interesting. You could deliver uh, 300,000 homes on a small proportion of London's golf courses. So that would be an entire year's uh, targets if, if, if you could get the political buy-in uh, for it. But, um, uh, but no, I, 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 I think it's always going to be political uh, because we have a higher engagement in uh, party politics and, re- and local politics from older members of society uh, who are perhaps in, you know, uh, lived in, in the same area for a long time or in, in, in more comfortable circumstances. Um, we, 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 have to, we have to remove that political angle from it and, and take a much more strategic, pragmatic view, like we, had, like we do with infrastructure. Housing is infrastructure, ultimate, ultimately. Um, you know, trains get people, people from, you know, from one place to another. But um, housing gives them a place to, you know, to, to, to live and to thrive and to, and, and to, to, and to grow and support the economy. Um, so we have to look at it as a, as, a, as a piece of infrastructure and make those sort of strategic, difficult decisions like we did with HS2, for example, like we did with uh, Crossrail, that, you know, sometimes there, there are things that are more important than politics. So on, on Lundown, we, we covered the previous planning reforms a lot, uh, the ones that were being rolled out by Michael Gove under the Boris Johnson government. It's now being reported that the new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, looks to scrap the planning reforms, the sort of much talked about supply side reforms, which have been put forward by Liz Trust just a month ago. Um, what do you make of this, Russell? Um, is this another thing that could hold back growth or were those planning reforms potentially a, a bit challenging it's, it's difficult to know which planning reforms they're referring to because it seemed to be that they were coming up with all sorts of uh, all sorts of ideas i mean the planning reforms to me seem to be um completely opposed to delivery of of housing and and taking and moving targets for example or um you know putting control of housing delivery in the hands of local people which ostensibly seems like a sensible idea but inevitably would just lead to uh, a, you know a stifling of of delivery so i think you know the idea of zoning is quite sensible and it's what lots of other you know countries do they do in the states i mean we we have a we have a sort of a discretionary planning system here it's all about negotiation and and, and, and balance and, and and you know I think that um, adopting some kind of zoning some kind of zoning system is is very sensible. The big problem we have here is uncertainty that you can a developer can spend uh, you know millions of pounds on acquiring a site and then going to a getting to a planning uh, application only for it to be 
thrown out at committee and and that and that uncertainty all it does is inflate house prices because those costs have to be absorbed somewhere so if we can find a way of uh, of removing that 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 political element that uncertainty from the system that will be a, a, a good start zoning might be something to do with that might be part part of that piece we're now on to the culture section uh we're going to look at things that are on the the radar in london um Coming up uh, next week, Tuesday the 8th of November, is Adam Khan uh, taking to the architecture on stage at the Barbican. Um, Adam Khan's currently working on 260 social housing units in Copenhagen. Uh, the company was founded in 2006, uh, has a diverse range of work at different scales, um, designed new homes and community facilities in Summerstown for Camden Council, uh, is even designing um, a pair of buildings at the Greenwich Design District, which is where Open City is based. Um, Russell, uh, you, you've done architecture on stage uh, quite recently. That was fantastic. Um, what, do, what do you think of the, the programme? And is, is this, this is a good one for people to, to check out? Well, this, this, night, this neat, uh, neatly sort of uh, fits in with our discussion around, around um, uh, council housing and other, because Adam is, you know, is one of the, the, the leading uh, housing designers, I think, in operating in, 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 in London, certainly. Um, a brilliant portfolio of projects. And um, it's part of this sort of renaissance in, in London housing, uh, uh, house building. And he's one of those practices that has, has, has built up a, a great portfolio of projects and is now delivering at scale. And, and, and sort of breaking the monopoly, I think, of the, you know, the larger housing practice and delivering stuff that, that really is thoughtful, beautifully designed um, and you know, and responsive to local, lo local needs. So, um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. It's going to be an excellent tour. Yeah, and I think particularly these architectural stage events by the Architecture Foundation and Barbican Centre, they're very accessible as well. So they're good for, for architects, but also people who are really interested in these topics um, to, to get in there. And, and they're quite sociable as well. It's always, it's always easy to, to talk to people. Um, so tickets for that are £15. The event's at 7pm on Tuesday the 8th of November. Uh, also coming up, we've got uh, Supermodels, an exhibition by Pearcy & Co., another uh, London architect who design housing. Um, it's actually quite cool to go and see an exhibition of architectural models um, because often you don't really see them outside of an architect's studio. That, that's right. It, it seems to be a bit of a sort of lost art. There are a lot of practices that do make lots of lovely models during their design process. Uh, but I must admit, it's not something that, you know, that, that we've commissioned particularly. But so, so to be able to go and see some really well-made, uh, well-crafted models is, you know, is quite exciting. Um, so uh, that's the Supermodels exhibition by Pearcy & Co. It's opening on the 25th of November at Regent Quarter and King's Cross. Uh, and it's a free exhibition. Fantastic. Well, Russell, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the show. Um, uh, where can listeners go uh, to stay up to speed on publications and other things that you're doing? Well, it's easy to find me on Twitter. It's at Russell Curtis, two S's and two L's. And uh, the, my, my practice website, RCKA, is rcka.co.uk. So everything uh, of interest uh, will, be, will be on there. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. 
You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.